Hello, welcome to episode number 116 of Turkey Book Talk. That's right, you're listening to Ibrahim Tatlases there, singing Yashamak Budeir, or This Is Not Living. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. Thank you for staying loyal during COVID-19. In this episode, we hear from Unver Rustem of Johns Hopkins University. He's the author of a fascinating book called Ottoman Baroque, the architectural refashioning of 18th century Istanbul, recently published by Princeton University Press. The book examines the adoption of Baroque and Rococo styles in the Ottoman Empire between 1740 and 1800, particularly in architecture and particularly in Istanbul. It talks about the adoption of Baroque motifs and how they fit into or perhaps question the popular idea of Ottoman rise and decline and the question of Western influence, Westernization. But first, let me remind you that if you haven't already, you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Membership gets you various extras, including transcripts in both English and Turkish of every interview on the podcast via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive, which includes a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive access to an exclusive discount deal which gets you a whopping 35% off the cover price of books published in IB Tourism Bloomsbury's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. Turkey Book Talk members get a special code for a 35% discount on over 100 books in that series of academic and general interest titles including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. Members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe. That whole archive used to be available online, but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. And finally, what I'm also doing now is sending links to articles and other content related to the subject in the email we send out to members with every new episode, which is perfect if the subject piques your interest and you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Unver Rustem. To set the stage, he opens his book by talking about how the Ottoman court was actually moved to the city of Adirne, close to today's borders with Greece and Bulgaria, for a number of decades at the end of the 17th century. I started by asking Unver why the sultans moved the Ottoman court to Adirne and why they moved it back to Istanbul in 1703. Yeah, the move was never formal, so Istanbul remained officially the capital, which it had been since uh, Mehmet the Conqueror conquered it in 1453. But, you know, the 17th century was a bit of a troubled time for the Ottoman Empire. The sultans were less successful in war than they had been, and there were some major territorial losses. There was the attempted second siege of Vienna, which didn't end well for the Ottomans. And so some of the sultans during the second half of the 17th century in particular preferred to kind of reside in the politically less fraught environment of Edirne. It was a sort of quieter place to be. Uh, there was ample hunting to be done there. And, you know, Edirne had been a retreat for the sultans before this point anyway, sort of re- a retreat from the capital. But it really sort of took on particular importance in the second half of the 17th century and essentially became the seat of the court, even if Istanbul remained officially the capital. And this caused um, some disquiet, especially among the Janissaries, especially among those still based in Istanbul who thought that 
that this was sort of no good way for the empire to be run, you know, out of a sort of ad hoc secondary capital. And so there was a revolution in 1703. And one of the demands of the rebels was that the capital be moved back, or that the court rather moved back to Istanbul, and that Istanbul be restored to its sort of former glory as capital, both uh, in name and, and in deed. And this shows the extent to which Istanbul was sort of understood as being at the symbolic centre, not only the political centre, but at the symbolic centre of the capital as kind of the, the showcase for the um, empire at, at large. And the book is really focused on Istanbul. The the example, the architectural examples come from Istanbul. As you say there, Istanbul was the kind of showcase really of many trends and of official shifts in sentiment. And you describe all that in the book. How important was this shift back to Istanbul in, in prompting uh, the later shift in style, the, the shift in taste towards the, the more Baroque style of um, of architecture? I argue that it was very important. I argue that the, the move back to Istanbul allowed patrons, artists, viewers to kind of reassess the city's heritage. You know, this is also a couple of centuries on from the conquest, right? Istanbul has been an Ottoman city long enough that the Ottomans can kind of look contemplatively at, at their own history within the city, their own artistic ar- architectural history, and also related to what had gone before under the Byzantines and sort of way up different stylistic options. And and one of the arguments I make in the book is that the Ottoman Baroque, which comes about, I argue, sort of later in the 18th century, sort of a few decades after the court has had time to kind of settle back in, the Ottoman Baroque sort of reveals new aesthetic awareness or consciousness on the part of patrons, artists and viewers. So I think Istanbul really is central to the book's story. I should, however, note that, and I, I do briefly mention this in the book, but there isn't much material to go on, but some of the shifts reflected or some of the sort of novelties we see in the earlier 18th century architecture in Istanbul after the court's return seems to carry on trends that may have begun in Edirne in the second half of the 17th century. And those trends are just not very well attested in the case of Edirne because so much material there has been lost. But uh, there's a particular painting technique, for example, which is sort of very big in the first couple of decades of the 18th century in Istanbul called Edirne Kari, which means Edirne work, right? So kind of the workmanship associated with Edirne. This is something that if anyone anyone knows the, the famous so-called fruit room in the top cup of palace in the harem, the fruit room of Ahmed III, that very small little wooden room with lots of beautiful paintings of flowers and bowls of fruit, that is in that style. So this sort of search for artistic novelty probably predated Istanbul and reflects certain trends that had already started in Edirne. But the the return to Istanbul certainly kind of amplified and and sped up these developments. Now, there's a a neat popular characterization, really, of this this era as a rather light one. So it comes after the uh, more confident, I suppose, according to this narrative, uh, classical era, you know, the Ottoman zenith, really, of the 16th century, where the empire was at the height of its power and the height of its confidence. And in contrast, the 18th century uh, that you examine in the book uh, saw this incorporation much more openly, really, of uh, more Western elements and Baroque elements. And people tend to see this as a sign of lack of confidence or imitation even. And you in the book argue throughout the book against this. Uh, You say it's um, much too simplistic to see things that way. Just take us through that argument of yours, really. 
Absolutely. That has been the kind of prevalent uh, narrative thus far, this idea that somehow building in a style that is either Western or Westernizing, depending on how you see it, is somehow a concession to Western supremacy, somehow an admission that, you know, we have lost our way and we are now having to borrow from or even imitate um, our superior neighbours to the West. First of all, just on the face of it, I think this argument can be dismissed when you just think about what putting up a building or really creating any work of art involves. You know, works of art, or especially works of architecture, aren't just sort of spontaneous products of sort of psychological unease. They don't just sort of spontaneously appear, right? They are carefully planned. They are paid for. The artist needs to consult with the patron. The central monument I discussed in Nur Osmania took seven years to build. And the idea that you would spend seven years building something that basically betrays a sense of unconfidence, to me, is already sort of just on the face of it really silly. So um, clearly these things are designed to say something, to speak to audiences and to express the more confident aspirations rather than the insecurities of their patrons. And so even if, you know, even if one subscribes to the view that the Ottoman Empire was in decline, and I'll talk about that in a second, why that view itself is problematic, even if one subscribes to that view, the idea that patrons would be paying for buildings that somehow advertise this insecurity is is obviously not particularly tenable once you think about it. The argument I make in the book is that we have the benefit of hindsight. We know the Ottoman Empire would collapse in the early 20th century. And so it's very easy and has been very tempting to paint this sort of very neat uh, linear decline narrative, right? So we have the classical period in the 16th century, and it's all downhill from there. But the story, when you look at it, when you actually examine it, in context is is much more complicated than that. The Ottoman Empire in the 18th century was still a way off from its fall, right? It was still a sizable polity straddling Europe, Africa, Asia. The Ottoman government still believed in its ability to sort of maintain the state and was actively seeking strategies to do so. It recognized that it no longer had the same military capacity, but the very fact that it was looking for ways to bolster itself, to realign itself politically with Europe, to the fact that there was that they hadn't sort of given up, as it were, right? They they were still seeking ways to, to to keep the state going. And my argument is that you know the art and architecture should be viewed as part of this effort to redefine the Ottoman Empire in changing circumstances. And you know it, it's funny because you can turn the argument on its head and argue that had the Ottoman had the Ottomans uh, simply maintained their old forms, whether in government or in art, this would show how sort of out of touch they were. With the changing realities, right? That they were sort of refusing to acknowledge changing times, changing circumstances, and just sort of entrenched in their old way of being. Whereas what we're seeing actually are many, many moves in art, in architecture, in the military sphere to reform, to update the empire, to reconfigure things for 18th century realities. And the kind of more global turn that Ottoman architecture takes in the 18th century is, I argue, a reflection of the Ottoman state's consciousness, awareness of the fact that this is a changing world and it needs to respond to it and to show itself to be a modern, relevant player, especially on the European stage. Yeah, I suppose one of the reasons why this characterization remains potent is because um, it, as we say there, it fits into this, you know, convenient narrative really of Ottoman rise and then slow 
centuries long decline um, and the Baroque era or the 18th century era rather uh, coincides uh, with the start of that decline and you talk about it in the book there's been a lot of um, pushback to applying that framework of rise and decline and, and what that does to the study of Ottoman history how it kind of warps it but it does still obviously uh, as you talk about it remains a very tenacious very potent narrative that you argue sort of clouds our view of, of eras like the 18th century in Istanbul. And, and one way to counteract it is actually to look in more detail at specific moments in this narrative. So yes, the overall story is one of loss of territory, loss of power. You know, if you take the whole, you know, all those hundreds of years into account. First of all, it's it's a very slow process, right? And if if we think of it all as declining, I mean, it sort of it becomes nonsensical to think of a decline that lasts that long. You know, declines generally uh, end things, and this was a very very long decline if we if we do view it as decline. So that's one thing. But in more specific terms, I mean, if you look at the particular moment, the style that I call Ottoman Baroque, I'm not, I'm not the first to call it that, but that style comes into being really quite quickly and quite suddenly at a particular moment, which is the very early 1740s. And it so- sort of suddenly springs up in the architecture of Istanbul and becomes the privileged style in the city and then further out in the empire. It spreads quite quickly um, until the early 1800s. So, you know, one of my key questions when I began this project and which hadn't really been answered in the existing scholarship was why 1740? You know, what had happened at that moment to prompt this change in style? And when you look at the historical political context, you see that the Ottomans had actually concluded a war against the Habsburgs and the Russians, who they've been fronting, uh, who they've been uh, fighting on, on both fronts. And they'd concluded this war in 1739, and they'd come out of the war successfully. They'd, in fact, reconquered certain territories that they'd lost to the Habsburgs 20 years earlier, and they also saw off a Russian threat. So actually, this this was actually a very successful moment, or, or a successful moment in, in this sort of larger narrative that we view as declining. It was a moment when the Ottoman state regained lost territories, and that the peace treaty that they signed with the Ottomans and the sorry with the Habsburgs and the Russians marked the start of a thirty-year peace with the powers of Christendom, which was the longest peace the Ottomans had ever had with their Christian neighbours and rivals. So you know, when you look at the particular context in which the Ottoman Empire, uh, sorry, the Ottoman Baroque was born, it was actually a moment of renewed confidence, of success after a war. We have a source that tells us that the Nur Osmaniye Mosque was built specifically to commemorate. The reconquest of Belgrade, which was one of the things that the Ottomans had won back uh, as a result of this war that concluded in 1739. So, you know, that event, that whole moment is, is a huge blip in this narrative of decline. And it shows that far from being sort of a style that betrays a lack of confidence or giving up, the Ottoman Baroque was born precisely at a moment when the Ottoman Empire was doing well for itself, relatively speaking. Now, related to this, uh, you argue that the um, Baroque style should not actually be seen as a surprising or inauthentic aspect uh, in the Ottoman context, because uh, actually the Ottoman Empire was an integral part of Europe in this era. And uh, there's a great passage in the book where you illustrate this, really. Uh, I'll read it out. Uh, You say, quote, that in the case of political and military reforms, the Ottomans looked to Europe with a pragmatic and resourceful eye, importing models only insofar as they served and could be modified to suit the empire's own traditions and needs. Nor should an openness to foreign ideas be understood as an admission of impotence and hence a diagnostic of degeneracy. 
To be sure, Ottoman commentators had often spoken of the empire's being in decline since as early as the last decades of the 16th century, but this anxiety was to some extent a conventional discourse. That the Ottomans continued to develop policies to bolster the state shows that they were far from truly believing that their days were numbered. Not all of these measures bore fruit in the long term, and it's largely because of the 19th century image of the empire as Europe's sick man that the Ottomans' receptiveness to foreign expertise has come to be viewed so much more negatively than that of the Russians, for example, whose own parallel attempts at reform produced much more favourable military results. What's important, however, is that the teleological understanding of Ottoman westernization as a marker of defeatist self-doubt ignores the deliberate, adaptive and versatile nature of the process as it actually unfolded. It's a complicated passage, but it does get to the crux, really, of the argument that you're making there. Yeah, it sums up everything I've just I've just been saying, um, actually. And um, yeah, the the Russian comparison is is really telling because you know Russia too in the 18th century underwent huge changes um, politically, militarily, architecturally. I mean, St. Petersburg was founded as a as a brand new capital in the Baroque manner by Peter the Great, and uh, we even he's even given his name to the particular style of Baroque associated with the city, which we call the Petrine Baroque. And it's just very telling, I think, that, you know, Russia, which, you know, like the Ottoman, like the Ottoman Empire, was a sort of Eastern polity, ultimately, you know, we're not dealing with a Western European culture here, but that Russia has somehow been understood as somehow entitled to these borrowings. There is not the same kind of scholarly anxiety about Russia looking westwards as there is about the Ottomans. And I think this is because we still adhere to old frameworks that sort of essentially divided along religious lines, right? So Russia as a Christian nation is somehow it somehow makes more sense that they would be looking west than the Ottomans as a Muslim nation. And this is a framework that I argue we really need to get past. We need to recognize that the Ottoman Empire, as well as being an Islamic polity, was also a Western power and had long viewed itself, or, or rather a European power, I should say, sorry, had long viewed itself as such, was, was viewed as such by the powers of Europe also. Many of the choicest parts of the Ottoman Empire were, were on European soil. I mentioned Belgrade a moment ago. Of course, Istanbul itself. I, I know we have this sort of romantic notion of Istanbul being a city on two continents, etc., etc. But Istanbul proper is the walled city, which is to say what we now sort of call the old city, right? The touristic part of the, of, of the city. It's the, the part where the top cup of palace, the, the blue mask, the Suleimania, all of that is. That is Istanbul proper. Anything outside that particular peninsula is technically a suburb of Istanbul and not Istanbul proper. So that even the capital technically is on European soil. And so, you know, this is not to um, dismiss the importance of, of the Ottomans, African and, and Asian holdings, which are also integral to the empire. But I think I sort of wanted to move away from this framework that placed the Ottomans in a, in a rival camp from that of, of Christian Europe, that, that really these are overlapping spheres rather than kind of monoliths uh, confronting each other. Something I should probably clarify, I mean, having spoken this much, is, is what I mean by Baroque to begin with. You know, it, it's a term that I'm sure is familiar to, to most of your listeners, because it's one of those sort of art historical terms that has, has managed to kind of enter popular discourse, but I don't think its meaning is particularly well understood. So there are there are different ways in which it's used, by the way, but the way I'm using it is sort of a rather conventional way, which is to describe a series of 
related artistic styles that flourished first in in Europe, uh, Italy especially, in the 17th century, really had sort of late 16th century beginnings, but really flourished in the 17th century, and then was exported during the 17th and 18th centuries to various parts of the world. Um, If you think of the Spanish Empire, that allowed the style to achieve sort of global spread. You find Baroque architecture in in Latin America, you find it in in parts of um, East Asia, South Asia, as well. Um, It's taken up in Russia, as I say, and it's taken up by the Ottomans as well. And of course, the Ottomans are not that far from Western Europe anyway. So this is not the same as Baroque all the way in East Asia. This is actually quite close to the the Baroque heartlands. And it's a style that's sort of characterized by the use of forms that ultimately derive from classical repertoire. So when I say classical, I mean sort of Greco-Roman classicism here. So these are forms familiar from uh, our public buildings that, that we see in many of our, our capitals throughout the world, um, forms that go back to antiquity ultimately, but which in the Baroque manner are sort of taken and rejigged, reconfigured, made it a bit fancier, made a bit showier, made a bit more elaborate, used with with slightly more dramatic effect than they are in in the Renaissance, for example, or in neoclassicism. And this is a a kind of recognisable family of styles. If you train your eye to recognise Baroque, you will see an example of Baroque architecture and say, oh, and recognise it. It's like, say, oh, that's that's Baroque. And um, this is a style that the Ottomans, I argue, begin participating in circa 1740. And they do so very much on their own terms. So the style that they come up with is recognisable as Baroque. It has certain elements like C scrolls, S scrolls, C meaning in the shape of the letter C, S meaning in the letter, meaning in the shape of the letter S, scrolls in these shapes, motifs like uh, seashells, uh, acanthus scrolls, these things. These are all recognisable motifs of the Baroque that the Ottomans take up, but they reconfigure them, they use them in ways that are very, very distinctly Ottoman, hence Ottoman Baroque. When we think about the present era, the last few decades, really, the current taste, I suppose, is for when, when new mosques are being built, big monumental ones that are infused with a lot of uh, meaning. The current taste is really for, you know, classical, a rather unimaginative copycat style of the uh, 16th century, which was, of course, you know, the, as we were saying, the, the peak of Ottoman power, really. And um, just thinking about it as I was reading the book, I suppose that reverence, again, it works when we think about it in the context of this narrative of decline, because that 18th century, more Baroque style, doesn't fit into that ideological demand, I suppose, because it's seen as being imitative. It's seen as being, you know, it doesn't fit the uh, the ideological framework, really, of glorifying the most powerful eras of the Ottoman Empire. And people look back instead to the to the 16th century for that. So the Baroque kind of fits awkwardly uh, in the in the present era, I suppose, when people look back at it. It's not just that it's viewed as imitative. I mean, Baroque in general has had a bad rap, even outside the Ottoman context. Baroque art and its sort of variant Rococo, which is a sort of fancier 18th century uh, late version of Baroque, which is also playing out in the Ottoman Baroque, this Rococo style. Baroque and Rococo have often been regarded as frivolous, as over the top. Again, I'm not talking about the Ottoman context, I mean sort of at large, and much less sort of uh, serious and weighty and having much less gravitas than the classical style, whether you're dealing with classical Ottoman and you're talking about the sort of 16th century Ottoman mode or classical in, in the European sense, meaning Greco-Roman classicism. And this is because Baroque and Rococo are so ornamental and we, in with our 
our sort of modern eyes tend to associate ornament and decoration with frivolity, with lack of meaning. This, however, is, is, a, is, a, is our perception. It doesn't reflect the perception of 18th century audiences. And this is really worth underscoring here. You know, my argument wouldn't mean much if I didn't have historical commentators and viewers sort of speaking very positively about these buildings. And they do. So we have Ottoman writers and Western writers looking at these Ottoman Baroque monuments and describing them in very, very favorable terms. So the Nur Osmaniye Mosque in several 18th century sources, both Ottoman and European, is picked out as the finest of Istanbul's mosques, which is not a ranking that many would subscribe to today, because as you say, you know, we've sort of been trained to prefer the classical 16th century style associated with Sinan in particular. So, you know, the, the mosque that I think most people would regard as the finest in Istanbul would be something like the, the, the Suleymaniye, right? That fantastic monument that dominates the city from its hilltop location. But for 18th century viewers, the, uh, the Nuru Osmaniye was uh, the height of fashion. And I think we need to move away from the equation we make between sort of fancy ornament, you know, swirly, curly decoration and frivolity. That equation is one that it's our problem, as it were. It doesn't really reflect the historical perception of this style, which 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 was viewed. I mean, clearly the fact that it's being used for mosques shows that this style was imbued with meaning and symbolism and taken seriously in its own time. But you're absolutely right that the current political landscape favours the style that looks more sort of normatively Islamic and that is more obviously associated with the empire's heyday, which is to say that sort of classical style of the 16th century, which is much more geometrical and whose sources lie much more in, in Eastern Islamic models than in, than, in, than in Western ones. You mentioned the uh, Nur Osmaniye Mosque there. Now, this is a mosque built in the middle of the 18th century in uh, Istanbul's Cembalitash neighborhood, so right next to the uh, Grand Bazaar, uh, right there on the historic peninsula. And um, this mosque is really seen as a key exemplar of the uh, Ottoman Baroque. Uh, in the book, you devote a whole chapter to it, its origins, its design, uh, what it symbolized. Talk about that. Who commissioned it? What distinguished or what distinguishes uh, the Nuros Manie Mosque? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a strangely overlooked mosque despite being so prominent. So anyone who's been to Istanbul has probably walked by it because it's right near the, the, the Grand Bazaar, as you say. It actually occupies one of the hilltops of the city. So it's, it's visible, you know, in that famous skyline. And yet it's a mosque that people sort of just walk past, partly because the, the, the way that it's now set up is, is that it's almost like a thoroughfare as you go into the market. So people just sort of walk by it. It's not very well presented. There's, there's been some fencing off of certain parts of it, which discourages people from sort of stopping and, and taking note. And also just because the, the tourist guides do not sort of, you know, it's not it's not going to feature in a top 10 of what to see in Istanbul. And that, you know, I think people aren't always aware of the extent to which what they see in a city kind of reproduces existing lists, right? That they are kind of trained to prefer certain monuments, certain styles to others. But the Nur Osmania really occupies a central position in the history of Ottoman architecture, not just because, you know, it features heavily in my book, but it, it just is a really important or represents a really important moment, which is to say the revival of mosques built by sultans after there had been a long break in the building of such mosques. So, you know, we have a spate of, of mosques built after the conquest of Istanbul, begun by uh, Mehmet the Conqueror after he, he converted Hagia Sophia into a mosque, he then built his own foundation and his successors followed suit for the most part and then the sort of series of mosques culminated with the Suleymaniye in the mid 
16th century. And then there was a, a bit of a break um, in the building of mosques in Istanbul. And then that break was broken by Ahmed I, who built the, the Sultan Ahmed Mosque, or the Blue Mosque as it's known, that really famous one with the six minarets in the early 17th century. And the reason there had been a bit of a lull, which Ahmed broke, was that there, there was this sort of, it wasn't a hard and fast written rule or anything, but there was this understanding that only a sultan who had done really, really well in war, specifically war against uh, non-Muslim enemies, and had kind of enriched the state coffers through such a war, only such a sultan should build a mosque commemorating himself, particularly in the capital, particularly in Istanbul. And so because, you know, the uh, Suleiman, the, the uh, magnificent successes were not quite as successful as him, they generally held back from doing this. Ahmed I was an exception, although actually he had a really bad military record, but he just went ahead and built the mosque anyway. And it was quite controversial when he built it. He was advised against it. There, there seems to be, have been a lot of anxiety about the fact that he built this mosque, even though he didn't have any significant military victory to his name. But after that mosque, there was then a really long hiatus, right up until the point the Nur Osmania built. So for over a century from 1617, which is when the Sultan Ahmed Mosque was completed, until the mid-18th century, until 1748, which is when work began on the Nur Osmania, no sultan built a mosque in the capital. There were two important Queen Mother's mosques, including the, the Yeni Jami, which is one of the most famous mosques in Istanbul, right there uh, on the shoreline in Eminönü. But the sultans themselves refrained from building out of respect for this kind of rule that only sultans who had done well in war against non-Muslim enemies should build. So the fact that the Nur Osmania happened at all is significant from that perspective. And I mentioned when I was discussing the kind of political context, the military context, that in 1739, with, with the, uh, the peace treaties, the, the Ottomans had succeeded in winning back Belgrade. And so the Nur Osmania, according to one source at least, was put up as a way of commemorating this victory, commemorating the conquest of Belgrade. So it marks a return in that sense, a, a sort of claim by the Sultan who began it, which, who was Mahmud, Mahmud I, of a kind of return to an earlier period in Ottoman history where the sultans were again winning. Now, of course, this was not a victory on the scale of anything that Suleiman the Magnificent had achieved. It was a, a far less significant victory than that. But in, in this changed context, in this sort of 18th century context, it was still a, a notable victory. So that's an interesting dimension, right? That even though we associate the Nur Osmania stylistically with, with novelty and, and a break from the past, symbolically at least, it was, it was actually harking back to an older practice, which is to say sultans building mosques in their in their own honour. Yeah, so the sultan who began it was Mahmud I, under whom Belgrade um, was reconquered. And I should pause to sort of say something about Mahmud I. He's not a particularly well-known sultan today. You know, he's not one of these sort of big figures that we think of when we think of the Ottoman family tree. But he was a sultan who was in power for 30 years. He, you know, he had a, he had a long and, and stable reign. He was a great patron of the arts and architecture. He was not himself a military man, and in fact, the sultans did not, in the 18th century, the sultans and the 19th century, the sultans were not leading their troops into battle. They were very sedentary by that point, but he was nevertheless a capable ruler, and he understood more than most the power of art to express certain messages and, and, and sort of to, to mark certain moments and developments. And so, having already shown himself to be a very keen patron of the arts, 
He then commissioned this mosque at the end of the 1740s as a way of commemorating the Ottomans' recent success against the Habsburgs. And this mosque, the Nur Osmaniya Mosque, is the first monumental example we have of the Baroque style. So the Baroque style had already been around in Istanbul since the early 1740s. You have earlier monuments displaying this style, but it was really with the Nur Osmaniya that the style kind of took on monumental proportions. And the mosque was completed in 1755. And the reason it's called Nur Osmanian has the name has nothing to do with Mahmud is that poor Mahmud died a year before its completion so he died in 1754 and um, it was completed instead by his brother who was Osman the third so Osman named it Nur Osmaniye or actually Nur Osmani which can be construed in two different ways one is uh, as light of the Ottomans Osman being the founder of the Ottoman Empire as well that's where the word Ottoman comes from or more specifically as light of Osman meaning himself so it's sort of like a double reference both to himself and to the dynasty. So the, the, the mosque actually has no, there's nothing in the mosque to tell you that it was essentially built by Mahmud I just because he happened to die a year before it was completed. But this was Mahmud's victory monument and it's important both as, as a return to this older practice of sultans building mosques and important as the first in a series of, of new Baroque mosques. So Mahmud's act of, of returning to this practice of, of building mosques actually began a revival in the building of mosques. So this was not the first, you know, this was not um, a one-off thing that other mosques would follow that were built by Mahmud's successors and they would be in the Baroque style. Yeah, Osman really uh, stealing stealing Mahmud the first glory there, and also and it's for that reason. Oh, sorry to interrupt. It's for that reason that the official Ottoman sources don't mention Belgrade as a reason for the mosque's existence, the, the reconquest of Belgrade, because that had happened under Mahmud and not under Osman. And once the mosque became Osman's mosque, that reference to Belgrade was sort of scrapped from the record because Osman couldn't take victory for his uh, couldn't take credit for his brother's victory. So it's from European sources that we know that the mosque was. Found founded and created as a way of commemorating the reconquest of Belgrade. So the Nurosmanier Mosque's uh, architect as well, he was called uh, Simeon, I believe, and not much is known or written about him, but he was either Armenian or more likely Greek. Uh, what, do, what do we know about him? That's pretty much it. We know very, very little. So, <laughs> But the fact that he is acknowledged as the architect of the mosque is itself really significant. I, sh I should pause to say that technically he, he was never given the title of architect. So this was sort of part of uh, sort of certain discriminatory measures that obtained in the Ottoman state until the, the later 19th century that basically prevented um, an Armenian or, or a non-Muslim architect essentially from being given the title of Mimar, which means architect in Turkish. And instead he was termed Kalfa, which um, is a term that means various things, but in this context is best translated as master. The builder. So there's a kind of terminological distinction made between Muslim architects who are able to be called Mimar and non-Muslim architects who have to sort of content themselves with, with the label of Kalfa. So he is known in the sources as Simeon Kalfa, so master builder Simeon. And although there would have been a chief imperial architect who was Muslim and who would technically have had to approve the designs and the plans, we know from the sources
sources, including Ottoman sources, that the, the, the design of the building essentially rested with this guy, Simeon Kalfa. And this is the first instance we have of an Ottoman imperial mosque being built by an, an unconverted Christian. So, um, you know, the famous Sinan of the 16th century, the famous uh, architect Sinan, began life as a Christian. We know this, he was a convert, but he, he served as a, as, a, as a Muslim and, and uh, lived as a Muslim and died as a Muslim. Simeon Kalfa, on the other hand, is, uh, was a Christian. His name is Christian, he was not a convert. And that in itself is really significant and, and again speaks to the kind of the changing times and, and the changing realities of the 18th century. It's significant also in that it relates to something else that's really important to my book, which is the role of non-Muslim artists and architects in developing this style. So Simeon, as you say, was was very likely Greek, but not just Greeks, but also Armenian artists and architects were instrumental to the development of the Ottoman Baroque style. And this is because the Greek, the Ottoman Greek and Armenian communities had large networks that extended into, into Western Europe. They could travel through these networks. They could acquire objects through these networks. There were merchants sort of linking various countries uh, through these networks, Italy being particularly important. And this meant that Ottoman Greek and Armenian artists and architects had particular access to foreign models uh, or particular ease in accessing foreign artistic models and may even themselves have been able to travel and see these works for themselves. They were therefore especially well placed to bring about this this highly cross-cultural style that sort of fuses Ottoman elements with elements drawn from Italian architecture, elements that seem to refer to French models as well. So Simeon sort of represents this larger phenomenon of these sort of entrepreneurial Greek and Armenian artists and architects who are able to sort of take on the lion's share of commissions during this period, even though there still is officially a core CORPS of um, imperial architects tied to the court, it was rather these uh, semi-autonomous Greek and Armenian masters who really rose to the top. And Simeon is, is a major figure associated with the Nurosmanieh, but we know very little about him other than that he was the architect of the Nurosmanieh. There is a story that he that he lived in a fancy red house. I think it was in Orteco. I wrote it in the book, but I can't remember to be honest. And and Sultan Mustafa III inquired who lived in that house and he was told it was Simeon and he was not pleased that a Christian should own such an ostentatious house and made Simeon move. That's the story that we have about him. Um, so that shows that even, even the builder of, a, of an imperial mosque could face discrimination as a Christian. So as you say there, Armenians became you know, responsible for building some of the most uh, important Ottoman architecture, uh, including some of the most important mosques. And there was this. Well, that happens more in the 19th century, the Armenian yeah. connection. That's the Balian family. In the 18th century, it was mainly Greeks more than Armenians who seem to have, have, have dominated. I was just going to ask about the Balian family. I mean, who were they? Where did they emerge from? And why did they have, how did they get this sort of virtual monopoly really on imperial building projects during the 19th century? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'll, I'll um, recommend here the, the, the work of my friend and colleague, Alison Wharton, who um, has written the book on, on the Balian family, whose title, I'm just going to look at my bookshelf, actually, because I confess to having forgotten the subtitle. So it's called The Architects of Ottoman Constantinople, The ba- Balian Family and the History of Ottoman Architecture by Alison Wharton, published several years ago. 
So the Balian family come out of this larger phenomenon of Greek and Armenian Kalfas who really kind of come into their own during the 18th century. And as I say, in the 18th century, the biggest names we have associated with this development are Greek. So we have Simeon, we have Foti, we have Cosmos. These are, sorry, Cosma. These are all uh, Greek Kalfas. But then in the 1820s, this a particular member of the Balian family designs the famous Nusretier Mosque. I don't know how famous it is, but it's famous among Ottomanists at least, which is uh, a very sort of grand mosque. It, it's it's not particularly large, but it's still sort of very grand and stately. It's in Tophane, and it's generally thought of as the mosque that marks the suppression of the Janissaries in 1826. So Mahmoud II built this mosque, and he was also the sultan who, who basically killed off the Janissaries in 1826. Things are a bit more complicated than that because the mosque was actually begun while the Janissaries were still in existence. But anyway, it is a mosque associated with Mahmoud II's military reforms, and it's the first mosque built by the Balian family. And I'm not quite sure why they managed to then establish essentially a monopoly over Ottoman imperial architecture, but they did. And so whereas the story in the 18th century and the earlier 19th century had been a bit more varied, where you didn't have a particular family holding sway, but simply a series of kalfas, the Balians managed to establish a kind of a dynasty, a family of, of, of architects who dominated the architectural scene into the later 19th century. And it was one of the Balian, the later Balians, whose name I forget, who was the first Christian architect to be formally given the title of chief architect, so Serenimar, uh, which had been a title denied earlier to, to Christian architects, even those who were essentially serving as chief architects. So anyway, I refer you to the work of my friend and colleague, Addison Wharton, who will answer all, any, uh, all your questions relating to Balians. <laughs> It's funny you mentioned the Nusretier Mosque because I wanted to ask you about that because I live very close to it in uh, in Topane and I always look at it and it's always struck me ever since I've been here that it's extremely distinctive. It's almost this classical Baroque style, even though it was slightly after the period that you examine in the book. It's got these, it's extremely ornate. It's got these sort of gold balls all around the uh, the dome. I'm sure there's a technical um, architectural term for them. I mean, what's the story behind, behind that? You, you touch on it a bit there that it was... Uh, uh, it was associated with the suppression of the Janissaries, but am, am I right to think that that is a, a kind of high watermark, really, or, or a very symbolic example of the Baroque style going mainstream? Yeah, it's uh, well, the Baroque style has gone mainstream long before then. So in, yeah. in the uh, the Ottoman Baroque style really kind of burst onto the scene in, in the 1740s and by, by the 1750s was the style, the kind of prestige building style of Istanbul. So that shift had happened a lot earlier. The Nusretia, I, I mention it in my, or I discuss it briefly in my conclusion. It's an interesting one because it's sort of, there's a lot that is Ottoman Baroque about it, but there are also features that point to a shift towards a kind of Ottoman take on neoclassicism. So that's the other thing to note, that once the Ottomans sort of entered the Baroque fray in the 1740s, from that point on, Ottoman architecture becomes or enters into a kind of long and permanent dialogue with the architecture of, of, of Europe at large. And so, you know, you see Ottoman versions of, of neoclassicism, Ottoman versions of Art Nouveau, Ottoman versions of eclecticism. So the Nusretier marks that moment when Baroque has really turned into a kind of ornate 
neoclassicism. So I view it less as Baroque and more as sort of the beginning of this new neoclassical chapter in Ottoman architecture. Although I grant you there is something quite Baroque about kind of just the, the exuberance and the level of ornamentation there. And it does refer actually to, so the basic shape of the mosque is clearly indebted, and some of the ornamental details too, are clearly indebted to um, a mosque known as the Selimiyah, not the famous Selimiyah in Edirne that was built by Selim II, but the Selimiyah in Uskadar, which was built by Selim III. And this it, it features in my last chapter as, you know, um, as one of the, the key monuments, one of the later, and but also key monuments of the Ottoman Baroque. There was a mosque built at the very beginning of the 19th century um, that kind of sums up all the things that had gone on in, in the previous 50 or 60 years, uh, and that kind of returns to the, the basic shape of the Nuros Maniyeh, but updates it in accordance with other things that had happened in the intervening years. So this the, the Nusretia looks to the Selimiyah, takes that basic pla- uh, scheme, that basic shape, and reconfigures it for the 19th, for 19th century tastes. And um, that looking back at the Selimiyah was not just a visual looking back, it was also a symbolic looking back, because Mahmud I was a great military reformer, and he was trying to pick up the kind of reformist mantle of Selim III, who was also a great reformer, but who, whose attempts at military reform had been basically stopped by the Janissary who forced him to give up on his plans for a, for a new army. They made him disband a small new army that he had founded, and they also led essentially to his dethronement. So Mahmud II was coming along and sort of completing the work that Selim III had, had failed to, to carry out by, by getting rid of the Janissaries, essentially, and replacing them with a brand new army. So the Nusretier, and I've actually written a whole separate piece on this if anyone's interested. It's on my academia.edu page, so you can go and read it for free online. It's a piece that examines why Mahmud built the Nusratiyah and that argues that even though he started it before he got rid of the Janissaries, he did build it as a monument to his anticipated military reforms. And so it happens to be sort of a nice coincidence that he got rid of the Janissaries in the same year that the mosque was open. So the mosque then did become permanently associated with his suppression of the Janissaries. But yeah, it, both in its, in, its, uh, in its site, it's located near the, the Cannon Foundry, in its symbolism, in its art, this was a building that was designed to speak to military reform and, and, and does speak to military reform. That was Unver Rustem. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 116. Don't forget to check out Friends of the Podcast, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is an email newsletter put together by journalists Razier Akkoch and Diego Cupolo. It's a very useful weekly one-stop shop that packages together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days. Dropping into your email inbox every Thursday, Turkey Recap also includes links to interesting articles as well as some excellent puns. Search for Turkey Recap on Twitter to subscribe and they've also just started a Patreon account for anyone who wants to support their excellent work. Of course, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can become a member on Patreon to support us. Membership gets you that IB Taurus Bloomsbury book discount, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive, access to an archive of 231 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also, do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use, follow via Twitter or like our Facebook page, and I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so please send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.
Duysun dağlar taşlar Duysun sesimi Sensiz geçen günler Verdi dersimi Vermem 